here. Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by the amazing host, the one and only Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I am fired up. 2022 is going to be a special year. You, know, you can just feel the pace of innovation accelerating. You have all this talent coming in the space. I can't wait to see where we are next year. And we get to learn from amazing guests. So let's get into it. I often describe this as being like a weird quirk of the job I do is that I get to learn from these people and I get to record it and let other people hear it. So excited to have some guests with us. Before we get to those guests, um, we just wanted to remind everybody that this is an insight show where we take a deep dive uh, into various topics. Uh, in this one, we're looking at the relationship between fintech and crypto. Not too long ago, we visited the relationship between big banks and crypto, cryptocurrencies, the tokens themselves. Uh, with incumbents initially dismissing Bitcoin at the very start, but now starting to turn around. But fintech's in a bit of a different place. Um, neobanks, uh, challenger banks, uh, and the whole fintech market is is really quite uh, taking interesting moves, you know, in the DeFi mullet thesis. So what's changed? What role do fintech companies play in crypto? What role does crypto play in the world of fintech? Uh, join us while we unpack all of this and ask some amazing guests some of these questions. Um, and speaking of amazing guests, um, I'm starting off with Trevor Marshall, who is CTO over at Current. Trevor, great to have you on the show. A big fan of Current. Do you want to tell everybody about who you are and, and who Current is? Yeah, absolutely, son. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, as you said, my name is Trevor Marshall. I am the CTO here at Current, so very accurate. Um, I've been with Current since the very beginning, and I'm leading a lot of our technology efforts. Um, Current actually has a pretty interesting path. We started in the very early days as a crypto company. Um, early on, we were building on top of uh, Ripple, 2015 or so. And while the ecosystem wasn't quite mature, um, enough for our use case at the time of really bringing consumers to get to the value of what crypto had to offer, we built our technology in a way that you know now, seven years or so later, when the value actually is there for everyday uh, people, we can actually bridge to that in a really interesting way. It definitely was, it's been a long time coming for us. Um, it's something I'm very excited to talk a little bit more about today, but Current is a challenger bank um, in, here in the US. We have over 3 million users. Um, we're really focused on our mission of improving our customers' financial outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, uh, famous for having worked with a lot of influencers like Mr. Beast and many others. So uh, excited to have people who are pushing the boundaries in terms of uh, marketing and technology and everything else. Uh, joining Trevor, we also have uh, Michael. I'm not going to try and say your last name, the CEO of Fireblocks. Uh, Michael, good to have you with us. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and Fireblocks and maybe how to pronounce your last name. Sounds good. So first of all, Simon Kai, thanks for uh, having me. Uh, last name is Shalov, so it's Michael Shalov. Uh, uh, so I'm the, I'm the CEO of uh, Fireblocks. What we do at Fireblocks is basically we provide the infrastructure for financial institutions and uh, nowadays also just uh, other type of businesses to operate uh, securely with digital assets, right? So we take care of all the custody infrastructure that they need, wallet infrastructure, settlement infrastructure. And uh, recently, uh, actually recently, it's basically like the last 18 months sort of doubled down on DeFi and we provide the entire capabilities for them to securely operate with, uh, I would say, the sort of the, the, the frontier of, uh, of uh, cryptocurrencies and digital assets. I think we are probably right now the most scalable player. We, we finished 2021 with uh, over 800 uh, financial institutions that are use, leveraging our, 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 our infrastructure with about uh, 2 million on-chain transactions per day. Uh, in, in 2021, uh, our clients transferred about uh, $1.7 trillion uh, through the infrastructure. So, uh, you know, pretty, pretty scalable. Uh, interestingly enough, we're working with uh, both the traditional banks, so you know Bank of New York Mellon and uh, Cross River Credit Suisse, some of those guys that we're working with. Uh, but uh, our bread and butter is actually both crypto natives and fintechs, right? So in, in the fintech space, we're working with uh, some of the like, probably like you know the biggest neo banks, uh, with uh, some of the crypto native players that are entering the uh, fintech uh, space um, and, you know, truly excited to talk about more about what we're seeing and uh, where he thinks this, this whole, you know, heading towards. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Kai, should we get this one kicked off? Yeah, let's get it started. So 
you know, let's go back and, and look at where did the relationship between fintech and crypto begin? So maybe Simon, frame this for us a bit and kind of when did it start and how is it different than how banks have looked at crypto? Yeah, I think when did it start is difficult to pinpoint because you've got Trevor and the guys out there and folks that started off being more crypto and found their way into fintech. You got people who've done more fintech stuff and found their way into crypto. I think it's really played out in the last two or three years. In fact, ever since this little company called Visa started approving um cards that were linked to crypto that was a pretty big inflection point and um, where it really became obvious but i think the there were always these people that are called uh daywalkers if you've ever seen the movie blade the vampire that can walk in the daylight that that kind of got both worlds because they were they were kind of separate worlds for a long time you know neobanks and challenger banks didn't touch crypto and crypto people didn't really do anything neobanky and they were very very separate but that started to change. And I think it's changed really the bellwether for me was when Square started adding Bitcoin and then when PayPal did. And these super apps just kind of made it feel and look a lot more mainstream to be to be doing that. And of course, they're non-banks, but they are massively scaled fintech companies uh, in, in many cases. Although, of course, Square now Block does have a charter and PayPal in some markets does have a charter. But they're not what you'd think of as a everyday deposit account from your Bank of America or Chase or whatever. But speaking of those guys, those really, really large organizations, they kind of have a whole business to run that is predicated on getting that direct deposit, paying the mortgage and dealing and keeping the lights on. And so much of their effort is in doing that. And do they really want to take on the regulatory risk of messing with that business? Or can they make more of a difference by, you know, kind of adding those key features that the neobanks were doing two, three years ago to keep some of their customers and to become more profitable in their lending business? So their their day-to-day focus isn't often on innovation. It's on kind of growing the business that they already have. So their imperative to really move is a lot less, whereas fintech companies are in this place where there is a bit more of an imperative. They're trying to solve the gaps that were left by the big banks, which is why I think fintech companies are so interesting. It's because they're attacking that space and they might look at crypto a little bit differently as like, oh, we'll get to it when people ask for it enough is one position, you know, when it's when it's really, really safe versus actually, no, we're going to do the hard yards on this and we're going to figure out how it solves consumer problems. So I think those are the main differences. And, and Trevor, you mentioned that you you started by looking at integrating you know crypto and being more crypto focused, and then really became a, a neo bank and uh, more of a fintech company. What was it like building on crypto when you started, and what has changed you know over time through that evolution? Um, our very first product was uh, you would give one of the three people who worked at Current in 2015 cash. We'd throw it in a safe, and we'd extend digital dollars off of a, a Ripple that we operated on a trust line. Um, that was really like a, it was an exciting engineering experiment. And, you know, as systems matured, we could have stayed that course. But the reality was, is there wasn't a whole lot of benefit to doing that besides, it's like a bank, except everyone can see your balance, um, which is not not a, not the, the catchiest sales pitch. Um, I think for, for me, a lot of it did like, the, especially the transition, not necessarily exactly one year, but like last 18 months or so has been the consumer demand has changed massively. We have been pulling our users pretty much since our first product, our first product that's still in market today launched in 2017. Like how valuable is this? And we look at a whole bunch of different features like that. And the, the tide changed actually, uh, in 2020, uh, mid 2020, it was, it's very similar to the price of Bitcoin that is generally drives sentiment, um, and attention. Um, but it was coupled with, Government stimulus, a little bit more um, cushion that that folks had um, in the U.S. in particular, where our customers are based, um, and that's really been driving us back uh, in, into this space. And then, Michael, when you started, my understanding is you know, the first clients of, of Fireblocks they were crypto hedge funds, and they were trading firms, and they were using your infrastructure, you know, for OTC trades. You know, and now you're starting to service you know, major financial institutions and the leading fintechs. When did that start to shift and what were the use cases that started to make fintechs want to become crypto enabled and need your infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the look, first of all, Fireblocks uh, started only uh, three and a half years ago, right? So we have a perspective, we don't have maybe like, you know, the the perspective that the current has from uh, 2015, right? So 
when we started the middle of uh, 2018, that wasn't like, you know, a great year for crypto as, uh, you know, people uh, might remember. Uh, and the people that were really involved and they were making money and they were actually active in the space were mostly the OTC desk, um, you know, hedge funds that uh, sort of hedge funds, prop trading desk and people that were reasonably market neutral, right? Because they, they were able to sort of su survive the drop from, you know, 20,000, 10,000 to, to three and a half thousand, right? But uh, as things started to pick up and, and most, more specifically, you know, 2020 was really a great year. Um, we, we started to see more and more people entering the market beyond what we call the crypto native. And some of the big crypto native clients like BlockFi and Celsius and uh, and some of those folks, you know, Gemini, uh, Coinbase and so on, uh, they started to look much more like uh, fintech, uh, fintech companies. Now, what what really happened, and I think, you know, for example, Revolut is a, is a, is a good example, is that you basically had... Um, Two type, two types of. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's sort of interesting to look at Square, Revolut, and 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 PayPal maybe to basically look in terms of uh, how it evolved uh, for for all three, and um, I think that for example, Square was there very early, right? So they build their own infrastructure, and you know they had already sort of this custody uh, solution that they built themselves, and and they were basically pr providing their clients with the ability to buy and hold and sell uh, cryptocurrencies, and some would transfer them. And then other companies that were entering the space or were ramping up uh, their activity, for example, Revolut, they started to run into significant bottlenecks in terms of uh, approaches that were too simplified. Also happened, by the way, to PayPal. And they started to look into an infrastructure that allows them to do things that are much more sophisticated and basically um, both compete on the scale and the efficiency in which they can run their crypto operations. You know, initially, yes, like, you know, buy and hold, uh, buy and sell and, and hold those assets, but more uh, also to be able to compete with people like Coinbase, right? Because they wanted to give an experience that is much more native. So, for example, the ability to withdraw uh, tokens from there was the ability to stake tokens, the ability to do payments. And once they basically started to run into all those uh, you know, product requirements, I think this is where uh, we basically tapped into that uh, client base and started to enable them across basically all the different offerings and essentially giving them the common infrastructure that uh, they need to, to to be competitive. Because I think that one of the interesting things that you really see in the fintech space is, that is you know, as Simon basically mentioned, is that two years ago, you, you had like, you had PayPal and you had Revolut and you had um, those guys on, on on Square on one side and and Coinbase and BlockFi and, and, and Gemini looked like a very different beast. I think that nowadays, sort of moving forward to 2022, it feels almost that uh, all those companies are actually starting to do more or less the same thing, and they need to compete with each other, and then and therefore they need to be very aggressive in terms of the experience that they provide. Yeah, and you you mentioned a, a number of use cases there, so it seems like kind of some of these first products experiences were around investing, you know, buying and selling, you know, Bitcoin as what Cash App you know, integrated. You know, then there are use cases like lending, like payments. Maybe Simon, how do you think about, you know, where we're heading of, you know, moving from investing to lending or payments? And then Trevor would love to hear more about, you know, Current's approach and how you've looked at DeFi and lending. Yeah, I think that whole space of like getting into the core operating uh thing of what a neobank does with DeFi at the back and fintech at the front is super interesting. One of the first things we saw is actually uh, just that uh, higher yield checking like feature that uh, that 4%, 5% APY in a low interest rate environment. Yes, it's technically different to an IRA or a, or a savings account. It, it has a different risk profile, but actually some of the simplicity that those products have been offered with in the short term has been really attractive to consumers, especially when you've got inflation at 6%. Unless you're making 6%, then you're moving backwards in real terms. So like the consumer's really feeling the pinch on that. And so that is a real, real area that we've seen and then uh, there's definitely been stuff now increasingly starting to pop up around lending. Uh, there's a company called Goldfinch. There's a company called Credics that are starting to deploy lending, not just in, in their home markets, but to other markets uh, for people that historically wouldn't have been able to get a credit score or wouldn't have been able to, to look at that. And then there's this whole third 
bunch of people who uh, just wanted to uh, use crypto day to day and be able to borrow some crypto or, uh, you know, kind of uh, stake some crypto and perform some of these other activities that just a better front end for has been hugely, uh, hugely valuable. Some of the, there's countless Web3 wallets and crypto wallets out there, but they're all confusing. There's a lot of, well, not all confusing. There's a lot of them that are confusing. Uh, it could be hard to use. So where the consumer's trust has gone has really started to shape uh, their, their activities in their day-to-day. So I think we're seeing a spectrum of those use cases, but honestly, I think we're still super early. So I'd love Trevor's views on, you know, kind of uh, what what that looks like as well. Yeah, it, and the the timing on all this stuff is, is pretty incredible. I think if you look at sort of current roadmap, certainly over the next few years, and certainly with respect to crypto technologies in particular, the big right, that needs to be wronged is income inequality in the US. And what decentralized applications allow for, it's the first time that pieces of the financial system can actually be owned by people who are not sort of the, the, the mainstay um, institutions um, that exist. And so a lot of our focus in DeFi is how do we break apart and give access to, because everything you know in this in these different products become tokenized, how do we give access to that ownership to our members? Um, and this, this this is really the big thing that's driving our move this time um, into crypto. Yes, uh, like a, an early component of that is buying and selling. Like that's a really important thing. Being able to even even though like fractional shares, it is a relatively new concept, but that it's still something that that's important. The fact that you can buy one satoshi and own one satoshi in Bitcoin is like fundamentally different than the way that ownership generally works. And the thing that is really exciting is beyond just sort of the base cryptocurrencies uh, and tokens that are available, how the pieces of the financial infrastructure become ownable is where we're putting a lot of our focus. I, I just want to double down on that, Trevor, because as, as we talk about that, like the the rationale, the why um, people are uh, kind of moving into crypto, you, you sort of alluded to you know, price movement, buy, sell, hold is kind of the default. There was a lot of consumer demand for that. But I always wonder and I worry, and I, I'm sure there's probably several bankers listening and seasoned veterans, like, are you giving people access to something that is essentially speculative and, and risks harming consumers? Um, so you, you sort of mentioned that ownership piece there. Uh, I know culture has been very close to what you think about in, in term, in, in current and your value proposition to the customers. How do you think that ownership piece really plays out? There was a there was a good piece around new money by Spike Lee and, and and that sort of stuff. Talk to me about audience and talk to me about why you think that's important to people and and if it can be real. Yeah, I think awareness and education, so visibility has been one of the biggest things that has accelerated over the last year. People understand a bit more about how these systems work, and the more that they dig in, the more that you know people get comfortable around. Oh, this is actually. Uh, a change in the tide of the way that 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 these systems can work, and I can use that to my advantage. I think, like you look at even the the crazy like GameStop stuff with people for the first time buying an equity, you know, downloading Robinhood and 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 just experiencing for the first time that that feeling of ownership. They start asking the questions: Well, what what are how does this thing work? Why is it um, important that we get in? What is I don't know naked shorting or are these other things that um, drive that particular? Um, cultural movement. Um, the same thing is happening with crypto. And a lot of it is driven by, okay, well, my friend made a bunch of money. I should go and look at this thing. So there's this, there's this wave of education and, and people educating themselves because you can't really, you know, put a textbook in front of someone and say, hey, read this, it'll make you rich. Um, people have to go and, and actually have that motivation to look at it themselves. And, and that started happening. That's the big reason that we're, we're moving into this space is because there is that sort of self-created demand by people to, to know more about it and to be able to participate. How it actually manifests in terms of ownership, I, I can't totally predict. Otherwise, I'd be like giving you a list of all the DeFi tokens that you should go out and buy um, because <laughs> it, it's hard it's hard to say because it is such a, a new thing. But like the 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 trend and the direction is there, right? You have you have the ability with open data platforms to be able to interact sort of without the need of that centralized institution that was previously performing necessary functions for efficiency purposes, for compliance purposes, for 
a lot of really good reasons. And there still will be the need for that. And in particular, that's kind of where fintechs step in. And that's like the fintech mullet idea or hybrid finance or however, however you want to describe it, which is you do still need uh, someone to call. You know, if you want to, if you're having an issue, you need to be able to reach out to us, talk to support people. You need to be able to understand, like there is some like security involved with these transactions. You need your hand held because you're not going to go out and become an expert and be that crypto native. That'll be one, maybe 1% of people. So the real opportunity is being able to understand and capture the value of ownership in these open systems and then being able to deliver it to customers in a way that they feel confident and understand what's actually happening. I want to throw it to Kai really quickly. Um, as you stand back and look at the whole industry, you have an interesting seat to watch You know, fintech and uh, crypto natives come into this space. Uh, how do you reflect on what Trevor was saying there about some of the roles of you know, kind of user experience, trust, and you know, speculation being more of a feature than a bug, I guess, and a forcing function for education almost? Yeah, I, I think that that's been you know one of the first areas that we've started to see entrepreneurs you know recognize is that you know the volatility of of crypto is is also driving a lot of engagement you know with their products and that you know integrating crypto features into a financial app leads to consumers opening that app more and and coming back to it and so there's still a really important component of education and I think you know, increasingly consumers are you know going out and interested in, in learning about, you know, these new technologies. Uh, but really, you know, Simon, you talk about this a lot of like fintech is really creating a better front end and consumer experience on top of some of the same rails that, you know, banks and everyone else is using. Now it's like, you know, crypto is the opportunity to use a new set of rails with a new interface on top of it that can lead to, you know, many different new products. And so I'm really interested in how this Kind of backend infrastructure evolves, and and Michael, I, I'm curious when you think about like banking as a service, you know, has existed for a while that companies build on top of. Do you see yourselves as like crypto as a service? And you know, you're a global company. You have you know, you're not just limited to you know enabling fintechs you know, in the U.S. And so, how do you see this backend infrastructure evolve where fintechs can start to go global? and have a product on top of a stablecoin that consumers across the world can use. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly the way that we think about it. Uh, I mean, one, one way we think about it is, is essentially like uh, backend crypto as a service or even like Shopify, right, uh, for, for, for crypto in terms of what we're doing. But I, I do agree with you and specifically about the point you made that I think when I look at fintechs uh, or when I came into this space, what I didn't... Uh, what I realized about uh, most of the fintechs is because they were relying, they had to rely on the traditional banks and uh, the old rails. Eventually, most of the, the things that they were doing, they looked a bit like a patch, right? On top of uh, deficiencies that uh, uh, banks and some of the other institutions sort of uh, introduced. And they were basically closing those gaps, but they basically were, they were, they were confined by the physics, right, of the underlying rails, and let's let's admit it. Like, yeah, those rails were developed actually over uh, one hundred and so years ago by the Federal Reserve, and you know all the all the stuff that are happening since then are essentially maybe like digital improvements, but they're basically confined by the same f physics and the same logics. And now with uh, blockchain, clearly all the or you know digital assets and cryptocurrencies in general all this logic and and all this physics basically uh changes right it almost it almost like you know the scene like you know from the matrix where you, where they they tell like you know, imagine there is no spoon right so i think that this is basically the moment for for the fintechs where they need to start realizing that uh, some of the limitations that they had, right? That they had to have banks, that they had to have those uh, custodian relationship, that they were confined in terms of uh, their treasury management to the, to one jurisdiction or or another. Uh, they were confined by the speed that they can basically move money from one side of the world to the other side of the world, and and those all those things disappear, right? And and by the way, it takes people that uh, uh, spend years uh, and years under you know specific uh, 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 under this kind of like you know physics and under the gravity of uh, of the old rails to basically understand all the new and neat things that they can do. I mean, definitely, 
uh, the conversations that we're having and the work that we've done with with uh, with the fintechs and the work the, the the work that we continue to do is very much focused on that. Like most of the conversations that we have is with like like senior leadership in fintechs that they trying to understand. Okay, so what should how should I think about it? What should I do? Uh, uh, what is the regulatory framework that I need to to think through? And when we basically ask them, hey, do you have MTL licenses? And for example, they would say yes. I was telling, okay, so you actually can operate the wallet for the clients, right? And in their mind, it's not always it's not always uh, clear to them that they can actually do it because in the traditional space, right? If you're a fintech and you need to hold uh, money or dollars for, for a client, you need a bank, right? You need basically someone who will be a custodian that has a Fed access that will basically be able to do the wires. In crypto, you don't. You already have a license that you can spin a wallet and you can hold it and you can basically do all the AML and BSA activity for, for them. So this is, a, 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 and also it's not always clear to people that uh, the fact that they can operate very close to the rail basically unleashes them to uh, push the boundaries, right? Or, or create more innovative products and create a competitive advantage compared to others, right? Because I think that, yeah, you have nowadays Coinbase and you have Gemini and you have Square and you have all those people that have done, that, that they had some kind of um, first mover advantage into the space. Um, and a lot of the fintechs that are coming in, they have, you know, a captive audience, right? They have their user base. That user base is actually coming from, I would say, a dumb, uh, so, you know, a demographic uh, a subset that is very much aligned, right, with operating with with crypto and sort of changing their minds. So they have a much better uh, chances of being successful. But they're still trying to figure out how do they innovate and how do they at least like you know coming with a with a solution that is as comparable to the most leading solutions that are in the market. And what we do at Fireblocks is really helping them to 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 accomplish that. So both providing them them the um, so like you know the examples and also allowing them to to operate globally. And I think that um, the advantage of not being confined by uh, by the old physics is also a, an opportunity. For the for the fintechs to expand quickly, uh, almost like us, right? I mean, Fireblocks it's sort of almost the exception of a company that within three years, or actually within our first year when we went live, we already had clients from Japan to San Francisco. And I think this is an opportunity also for the fintechs to almost go global because when you think when you look at most of the Web three projects, I don't know, Compound, Uniswap, all those DeFi projects, they have clients everywhere, right? They have clients across the globe. They still need to be mindful about uh, the, you know, there are still regulatory obligations clearly in terms of uh, AML, but I think uh, fintechs, unlike anyone else, they do have an opportunity to sort of do it faster than anyone and expand. I love that phrase, uh, the physics of the old rails. The physics of the old rails is they are national infrastructure that then people have found fixes to try and include together to make it work internationally. DeFi and crypto is the other way around. It's global by default. You then need to figure out how you comply in local markets. So the, the question sort of changes a little bit. Um, I want to come back to that, but we do need to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back very, very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. All right, we're back. Bringing us back in here. So it's almost like there's this notion of like degrees of separation from a bank where if you're a fintech entrepreneur and you want to build a product that can save, store, send money, you know, provide loans or interest accounts, 
you either have to build it on a bank or you have to build it on a fintech who's building on a bank. And so you're always one or two degrees separated from a bank. Now with crypto and stable coins, you know, you could be many degrees separated from a bank because you have this new infrastructure and these new primitives. So Trevor, we'd love to hear how you're thinking about you know, what it's like building on that new infrastructure. You know, you mentioned, you know, DeFi and yield accounts. You know, what's it like building on Compound? Are these are these actually ready for prime time that a fintech can offer consumer-facing products on them? Well, I want to um, talk a little bit more about what Michael was saying because it's it's super, super important. Um, one of the things we, we realized pretty early on was if you're going to put sort of another technology provider in between you and facilitating dollar ledgering or, or dollar transitions or dollar um, uh, sort of technology, and I'll, I'll explain that in a moment, you just won't be able to fully connect out to all of the opportunity that's available. So something that we focused on early was building our own core banking infrastructure so that we could facilitate this transition into stablecoin, into sort of on-chain experiences. That was the initial, you know, in 2015, sort of the reason we started going down that path. And now, you know, so many years later, we are able to actually start realizing some of that investment, although we've been able to do some pretty interesting stuff um, outside of the crypto space because of that. Um, that transition, the, the basic, the ability to go from a Fed dollar into a digital dollar and, and apply some sort of um, uh, action with that digital dollars, allocate it to a compound contract or other. There's lots of exciting stuff you can do that. You know, Michael has lots of really great products that you can do those. You can do with those dollars, but. Um, for us, that is that is the key point. Is we became experts in dollar ledgering. We're not experts in sort of the crypto technology. We work with lots of partners to help bring these um, uh, these experiences to our members. But we focus on that transition of getting a paycheck, so dollars through ACH direct deposit, which is our bread and butter, and being able to then facilitate seamlessly, uh, you know, a DeFi experience. And so that that's that transition between dollars and and digital dollars is is the key point because that's how you move away from sort of traditional banking and into sort of the future of money. And there's lots of stuff that you have to be able to do with dollars today. Like you can't go into Amazon or Starbucks or you know any other large retailer today and and spend stablecoin. You're gonna go and and you're using to you know use a bin debit card um, and that that money will th flow through visa and then merchants will uh, get their money through a reverse wire so like there's there's infrastructure that has to exist for the convenience of payments today and as that changes and I'm sure it will and I'm sure visa will be at the the forefront of making some of those uh, transitions because they have a huge interest uh, to to be in that position that's when you know our flexibility around our dollar technology, will really allow us to bring our customers along with those the changing trends. And Simon, what, what does this mean for you know, things like embedded payments and, and some of these other you know, fintech use cases that you know, people have been building, they've been building it on top of you know, bank infrastructure and banking as a service. You know, what do you expect to see now that entrepreneurs you know, like Trevor you know, have this new infrastructure they can build on? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the, as I look at the last couple of generations of neobanks, we saw wave number one who you know did it the what I would call the hard way, which is they went directly to a payments processor and a bank partner and built a lot of the infrastructure themselves. There are real advantages to doing it that way, but it is difficult. And then what we saw is the rise of people who you know infrastructure providers who simplified it. I'm thinking about Synapsefy. I'm thinking about Unit and Bond and all of those players who kind of abstracted a lot of that pain away. And what you see as a result of that is just an explosion of new neobank types, including people who sort of blend the DeFi and crypto world together that sit on top of that infrastructure. And of course, companies like Fireblocks and ZeroHash and, and many, many others sort of do the same for crypto, but they also start to support some of those other API providers and support the clients directly. So the the space is kind of multidimensional, but what's exciting about that is if you start to peel back the layers of the onion, if you start to peel back the layers of the infrastructure, the types of products you can build and the speed at which you can build them 
uh, are expanding. The types of products you can build are expanding and the speed is is contracting. So as you provide that infrastructure, you now don't have to become an expert in crypto infrastructure. You don't have to become an expert in crypto regulations in different markets. What you have to focus on is solving your customer problem, whether that's in fintech or, or crypto. And I, I suspect, Michael, that's near and dear to your heart in terms of like helping people through a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean... I- I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that uh, the abstraction from the complexity, um, this is sort of like, you know, cri- critical and I think it unleashes the the opportunity. I, I think that many ways to, to look at it, it, it is a bit like what the iPhone uh, brought to the to the market. And it's the, it was... In a retrospect, right, the power of, of the iPhone was not the fact that uh, it was the first... Uh, uh, touchscreen uh, phone, right? It, it was actually the App Store, right? That it basically unleashed people to create millions of applications, right? Where you had APIs to interact with a GPS and, and APIs to interact with a microphone and basically build, like, unleash the creativity of people. And I think that uh, the combination of DeFi and FinTech is essentially what this is going to do to uh, to financial systems, right? That basically now you will have um, a lot of different developers and a lot of different entrepreneurs with great ideas that just like, you know, the underlying layer of the complexity and the security and the, and the sort of uh, interaction with the blockchain is, is somewhat solved, right? Through companies like ours and others that... Uh, that, that you mentioned. Um, and, and also, by the way, uh, w- when you look at the interaction with, uh, w- w- with the smart contracts, there are companies that basically creating layers of abstractions and layers that allow developers to build uh, a- and interact with those protocols. And I think some of the things that you're actually seeing is, which is a really interesting example in my view, is, is the, you know, basically GameFi, right? Everything that is happening in the GameFi where, uh, space where, um, the, the taking an economy that sort of existed and then becomes open and there is a world, right? Or, or it's almost like, you know, uh, pretty straightforward to understand what will be the intersection of uh, fintechs and GameFi, right? As, as Trevor mentioned, the on-ramp, right? The on-ramp into, into stable coins and the financing of those interactions and the ability to be a trusted party that uh, provides the wallets or the custody it is, I think, something that will be preserved for the fintechs, right? This is, I, I think that they are, at the end of the day, they are the trusted interface for the users that they have. And this is where the users want to see those assets. But clearly the ability to on-ramp and interact and provide a smooth connectivity with, you know, pretty much, I believe that pretty much like most of the things that we know from Web 2 will become uh, Web 3 enabled. And that interaction, I think, is uh, the, the gateway over there will be dominated by the fintechs. The the Web 2, Web 3 things, uh, an interesting one. We saw de- high-profile debates on Twitter um, between uh, the founder of Block and Twitter himself, Jack Dorsey, and many of the, the VCs out there, uh, which made me sort of wonder, like, in the early days, you mentioned the iPhone, um, the early days of everything, people sort of have this skeuomorphism problem, I think. There's a really good interview with Bill Gates and David Letterman in the 90s where um, David Letterman asks Bill Gates, what will we use the internet for? And like I don't know you could listen to the radio and David Letterman goes oh have you ever heard of a radio I can I can kind of already do that um oh well you could watch um tv or you could consume content have you ever heard of a newspaper and so the skeuomorphism thing is this idea that I will do what I'm doing now in this new technology and actually that's not what it's good at what it's remarkably good at is the things that you're not doing now and all of that opportunity space and that's what really excites me about what are entrepreneurs going to do and i think we need a conversation about what this technology is good at versus the traditional world and once you get into technical conversations these things always get super super nuanced but I, that ownership point trevor that you made is is, is kind of an interesting one uh, and i, I want to do that i want to start looking to the future kai um you were about to jump in there but as we look to the future uh i'm interested in your perspectives on on everything we've heard from from the guys so far yeah one i, I was really just just wondering like is is there really a significant network effect here where if one fintech becomes crypto enabled 
and enables consumers to to hold a stable coin, okay, you could offer you know some products. Maybe you could offer a high yield account. If a hundred fintechs across the world become crypto enabled and they can all hold stable coins, now you could start to see things like payments, uh, and so you could start to have you know fintechs you know building products that can move value between each other that aren't dependent upon you know underlying banks in their local markets. Uh, and so I've been fascinated to to hear about you know the Fireblocks network and and what you're building there, Michael. So curious what you're seeing as you know, as more companies come into the space, is that opening new things like, you know, payments, B2B payments that, you know, you have to have this critical mass and then the growth accelerates because it's significantly more useful. So, you know, I think that this payment use case and and, and uh, integrating uh, the different players, uh, both on the B2B side and hopefully uh, in 2022, we'll also start to see it on the B2C side. I think, uh, or C2C side, uh, is is our 2022, I would say, like, you know, focus on roadmap, right? But I, I truly believe you know, one of the things, and this is something that I'm experiencing personally, right? You have a Venmo account and you want to transfer it to someone who has a Zelle account. There is no way for you to do it, right? You basically need to have five different apps, right? With accounts on each one of them that are somewhat connected to your bank or multiple banks. And if and, and any any person that you want to transfer it to, hopefully you will have an app that he also has, right? Why you know why why, why is that even necessary in the world today? It's almost like uh, if I'm using Gmail and using you using an Outlook, I won't be able to send you an email, right? That's that's basically the the equivalent of that. So I truly think that once we basically starting to see more and more fintechs, especially in neobanks, that they that they have cap- crypto capabilities. There is no reason why to, I mean, you actually can do it today, right? I think that we need to fine tune or to tweak the user experience a bit more that if I want to transfer to my uh, friend in the UK, uh, you know, dollars and, you know, I have a square app and he has, I have a, I have current app and he, and, and they have a Revolut, there is a way for me to send him USDC, right? And not, uh, try to figure out how do I do uh, a wire and, uh, and the same thing is actually happening, I think, on the B2B. On the B2B, I think there is, on one hand, it's somewhat easier because, um, for example, we at, at Firebox, currently about 30% of our clients are paying us with stablecoin, and it's a super easy process through the Firebox network. What I realize is that in order to bring it to the in the uh, business world, uh, we need a bit more help to educate uh, the CFOs, right? Basically, the accounting teams. I think the, the, there is lack of knowledge and lack of understanding within the accounting professionals in terms of this new world, and they don't fully understand that there is a new world of, you know, they don't even understand the nuance between a USDC and a Bitcoin, right? That they're actually being treated in a very different way. So I think that there is need to be a bit more education over there, but in terms of the use case, if you think about the amount of parties that currently sit when you actually do a B2B transfer, it's like unreasonable. Why isn't that like, you know, one transaction on the blockchain? And I think we're going to head there uh, during 2022 because a lot of, th- there is uh, an appetite from all the ERP platforms, uh, ERP and billing platforms to actually introduce that change. Yeah. And Trevor, how, how do you think about you know payments and and as you build it at current and what this infrastructure can enable? Yeah, I, I think the vision that Michael laid out is exactly right. Uh, we, if there's demand for a current user to send money to a Revolut user, then we should be able to facilitate that. We are very much that interface between our customer and whatever outcome that they 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 need or or want. Um, and so, yeah, I think payments are really exciting. I do think there'll be hundreds of fintechs. I think there's just like a very natural gravity towards this stuff because the capability exists. And to be honest, the, the demand is, is extremely high. Like any fintech that's listening to their customers is hearing a demand for, for this because, you know, we have a fairly large, uh, customer base here in the U.S. I'm sure it's representative to a certain extent. I'm all every fintech has a slightly different demographic, but at, at the end of the day, when you're in the millions of customers, you're getting a a strong signal out of that. And certainly in the U.S., the demand is there. And so, just as a the the natural structure of agile companies that are set up to meet the demands of their customers, we will all end up in that place in pretty short order. So I, I do think it is a matter of time. Um, 
yeah, I'm pretty excited to see sort of how some of these transitions happen. I think there's some really interesting opportunities, um, definitely in any place that you have sort of arbitration or, you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking very top of mind, like disputes, card disputes. I think there's a, there's a lot of ways you can start resolving that. Apple Pay and Google Pay took a huge stab at that by, you know, changing the way that authentication works and, and the way that liability transfers. But that's one of the big sort of benefits of the technology is, is, uh, is finality, which doesn't exist pretty much anywhere else um, in, in the payment system today. So I think that there's going to be some really interesting things that happen that are far further away from the skeuomorphic, um, you know, outcomes of, well, you know, if I can use a debit card, why do I need stablecoin um, types of arguments? But I, I often ask, uh, you know, when people are stuck in skeuomorphism, what would you do if any transaction was programmable? What would developers do? What would it mean if you could uh, automatically set aside money in taxes and bake that into the transaction? Or what if you could build a digital, you know, replace invoices entirely and have it baked into the very transfer? Because that's really what you've got with NFTs is when I move the legal ownership of the asset, I've also baked in the invoice and all of the future payments around it and think about the amount of b2b stuff in the world that's just you know and the amount of admin in the world that is just dealing with regular recurring payments and all of that kind of stuff that you get right there out of the box so the the what will people do uh, as you look at the future is is hugely hugely exciting and as you think about like that design space I'm just excited what entrepreneurs are going to build, uh, Kai. And as we talk about um, stablecoins in particular, I think uh, was it uh, Michael that made the point that accountants often don't understand that there's a difference between that and a Bitcoin. I think there's so many of these little um, misunderstandings out there about what the asset actually is, how it's treated, and how I can use it and what benefits it offers me as an organization. And, and you see this again, going back to, to Jack versus the VCs in that debate of the, the sort of the platform versus the protocol. Um, there's uh, Chris Dixon has been talking a lot lately about moving towards, and you mentioned it, Trevor, where it's more participatory ownership, where you know we can own a piece of the underlying network. We can own a piece of the underlying infrastructure. That might not mean that we all do, but it means that it's possible and that potentially helps avoid some level of lock-in and it creates different incentives. And that's hugely exciting and interesting. So um, as we do look ahead, I'm going to ask you all for your predictions and start to start to get out the crystal ball, which given price movements and everything else, I'm just going to stay away from that because that's kind of crazy. So what would you like to see happen in the next sort of one, two, three years as this space starts to evolve? What are you really hopeful to see? Um, I'm going to start with uh, with Michael. So I think that the, the two things that will be excited for me to see is, first of all, the, the, the payment. Uh, the payment use cases actually... Uh, becoming uh, mainstream, uh, especially on the uh, consumer consumer to retail side, uh, also like you know on the on the B two B side. And the other thing that I would be will be really excited to see is uh, around NFTs, how this sort of traverse into ownership on like real uh, web to content, right? How as if you upload a video to YouTube or you you know upload a, something to TikTok, right? You basically own, uh, you have the ownership that the creator basically has the ownership of that, and basically all the advertisement and, and all the economic model that uh, sits behind it right now, which is currently locked into the platform, becomes detached and uh, and sort of rides with the NFT. Trevor, how about you? Uh, for me, uh, as a, a technologist, I'm really excited about the scalability solutions that are out there. Um, I won't get too deep into the weeds, but I am excited about some of the sort of delegated proof of stake uh, concepts. There is an element like this is something that we looked at in 2018. We designed a system where users would be able to publish their transactions um, on Ethereum into uh, into sort of an IPFS encrypted format and people would be able to buy it um, as a way to like power a points platform. So people would be able to monetize their data. But when you look at gas prices and when you look at sort of the economics on it, it just, it didn't, it didn't make any sense because you'd be paying, you know, a hundred dollars to buy, to spend one cent on a, on a piece of information. Um, so I do think there is still scalability issues um, that exist that there's a lot of use cases that don't rely on 
or are not impeded by those scalability issues. Like if you're buying a $20,000 NFT and you have to pay $150 in gas, it's not a huge deal, but it is if it, you're talking microtransactions. So I think like if I put on my technologist hat and, and think about what the opportunities are, it's it's being able to get true sort of small payments and and, and, and make seamless payments experiences that can be tied to usage um, and tied to transactions that are non-monetary. So like in the NFT space, being able to encode identity as a form of uh, attested KYC or, or BSA compliance is one area that I think is really interesting because it'll allow for onboarding across different companies. There's a there's a big concept in uh, fintechs around, you know, if you're working with different partners, everyone has their own KYC, which uh, is Know Your Customer and AML, anti-money laundering programs in the US. If there's a way that we could make that attestation on-chain, I think that would be really exciting. It would open up a ton of embedded uh, use cases, but it still relies on that scalability because, again, if it costs $150 to publish a transaction, it, it's just not something that's feasible um, for most integrations. So those types of use cases are what I'm most excited about, the, the, the ones where uh, the information can be shared for much cheaper. Kai? Yeah, I, I guess building on on Michael and, and Trevor, I'd love to see... Uh, streaming stablecoin payments become a norm, at least within the crypto industry, where you know you're starting to see you know there's some crypto companies that are paying some of their employees in stablecoins. You know, Michael mentioned 30 percent of of their clients are paying you know their Fireblocks bills in stablecoins. But this ability where you know every crypto company and as the industry grows you know, should be dogfooding and, and using, you know, this new infrastructure. And then I think you'll see industries adjacent to crypto that are selling products to crypto companies. You know, if every employee is receiving their salary in real time, you know, in USDC, and if every vendor is able to have these on-chain, you know, invoices plus, you know, payments, I think there's a lot of fintech innovation that can happen starting within a crypto company interacting with an employee or another crypto company that can then build out the models that are necessary to go into non-crypto businesses. It's going to be exciting to see. Well, uh, that, can you believe we're out of time already? There are so many rabbit holes I wanted to run down with both of you guys. This this does feel like it needs two or three more drinks and, and a lot more time to really get into. But I want to thank you all so much for, for joining me. Um, Trevor, let's start with you. Where can people find out more about you and, of course, Current? Current.com is the best place to find us. Um, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, it's the easiest way to get in touch with me. Thank you, Trevor. How about Michael? Uh, similar. So fireblocks.com and uh, the simplest way to reach out is uh, through LinkedIn. Perfect. And Kai? Visa.com slash crypto and on Twitter at Kai Sheffield. Uh, you'll find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com. Remember, if you like this episode, uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Uh, and remember to tell your friends too. Like, um, leave us a review. It helps others find the show. We'll be talking crypto and blockchain. We'll be doing more insight shows, more news shows. Um, we really look forward to speaking to you soon. Goodbye for now. Have a great week, everybody. And uh, we'll be back soon. <laughs>